Hello and welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. Uh, this is Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute and the Antonin Scalia Law School, and I'm joined by my friend, uh, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow Richard Epstein. Richard, are you still socially distant? Unfortunately, I'm sitting right here in the middle of New York City in the over 70 group. Um, by every single account, I'm right at the, the bullseye of this particular situation. Uh, the streets in New York are completely deserted. My joke is you're safer going outside than staying at home because there's nobody around. Uh, and the economic toll, I think, has become just enormous. Uh, you can see it, the lack of anything open, anything moving. Uh, you can buy food and fruit and stuff like that, but that's about it. Um, and yet this is clearly the epicenter of what's happening in the United States. It's not New York State. It's the New York City metropolitan area. Uh, Northern Jersey is very heavily affected relative to other parts of the country. And some of it is dribbling off into Connecticut. But since Connecticut is further away from New York City than is Jersey City, um, the effects there are much less. Now, we're recording this at about midday on Thursday, April 2nd. And just uh, looking up at my screen at the the data that's published by Johns Hopkins University's um, Center for System Science and Engineering, uh, on their dashboard right now, they say there are uh, confirmed cases of 900, just, just a tick under 963,000 confirmed cases worldwide, uh, total deaths worldwide of a tick over 49,000 in the United States, um, confirmed cases uh, just a tick under 217,000, uh, total deaths a tick over five. The total deaths, five, oh, just over 5,000. Now, Richard, um, you've published two widely read columns on Hoover's Divining Ideas website, um, thinking about the models uh, and questioning the, the models and projections yeah. regarding uh, uh, cases and deaths. Your latest column, which just came out uh, just a few days ago, is called The Grim Costs of Total Lockdowns. And in this piece, you're focused on the uh, on, on the costs of the policy response, uh, as you see it, can you just describe the article? Oh yeah, it's it's complicated set of situations. There is a huge debate in the literature about the severity of the coronavirus, um, and what makes it extremely difficult to figure out as a technical matter is every single model, whether you have a, an extremely high peak in some cases up to 10 million new cases a day, or 60 percent of the people in California, it starts slow. There's another model which says that it starts slow and it peaks a little bit earlier. And right now we're in the very, quote, early stages of this. And the two models basically give you similar kinds of data points. And so what you have to do is to wait a little bit longer to figure out which way uh, the curves are going to inflect. Are they going to start to go up or are they going to start to go down? Deaths are going up more rapidly than they did. Cases are going up less rapidly uh, than one would have expected. So there's some conflict and noise there. Things in New York are bad. Things in California seem to be better, some conflict there. Uh, so what I did in this particular paper is I said, let's just back away from this entire question and assume that there are two models. There's a the serious model and the non-serious model. And then ask the kind of question of how you're supposed to respond uh, to the two different cases, taking into account the fact that when you're doing these models, it's not that you're just simply changing the slope of the curve having to deal with coronavirus deaths. You're completely reshaping an economy in ways that uh, are known as a certainty be extremely difficult. Well, how do you justify this? And uh, what I did is I basically took issue with the standard technique of figuring out the 
of this thing by looking at the value of a statistical life. And, and this is not something which you could observe by market exchanges because it turns out nobody's buying and selling life. Adam, I don't want to pay very much for your life, and you don't want to pay very much for mine. So no, oh, not, not so not so hasty, Roger. You're not so hasty. I mean, there are some people there who would put a price on my head, but let's at least <laughs> leave that at least for the moment to the side and, and, and see what it is. So you try to figure out how it is. And what you do is you do survey data. And the survey question is something like, you know, you don't know anything really, but um, in order to reduce the chance of your death by one part in 10,000, how much money would you pay? And people say, oh, I pay $1,000. And then what you do is you just multiply those two numbers together. And you say, oh, the value of a statistical life is $10 million. The difficulty is we have in the United States, in terms of material resources, before this late crash down, roughly speaking, $100 trillion, which is a lot of money. Uh, but it turns out that if you take these statistical live calculations accurately, you've got about, you know, 33 times the amount of that. It's $3,300 trillion worth of statistical lives out there. And if you really want to spend $1 to save $1 in a statistical life, uh, you're quickly bankrupt. So you have to figure out something else to do in order to handle this. Now, this is not a market question, but the best strategy is uh, two parts. The first part is you look at this thing and you say, look, we can trade off statistical life against statistical life because it doesn't involve any kind of monetary transfer payment. And so if you have two individuals, uh, one of whom is, say, 30 years of age and has an expected life of 50 in good health, and somebody who's 78 years of age and has three lives of expected health and they're not in good health, you're trying to figure out whom to save. Uh, you save the person who has the greater number of statistical, uh, useful statistical years, or qualities as they're called. And so you eventually end up with a triage system, which everybody has used, and it's written about in the paper. People condemn it. And then people use it because there's nothing better. And what it says is that some people are going to get better anyhow. Uh, in the coronavirus case, it means stay home and in bed and drink lots of fluids. There's some people going to die anyhow. Uh, don't put them on ventilators in order to extend their lives at thousands upon thousands of real dollars um, to save a couple of days. And then there are people in the middle, people who are young, reasonably healthy, have a very bad case of that. That's where you invest your kind of money. And so I think, you know, if you're doing that, uh, the triage situation turns out to be appropriate. Uh, the question then is, how much do we want to invest in controlling this kind of thing? And, you know, my view about this is you probably want to put in a fair piece of change under any of these circumstances. One reason for doing so, which I didn't mention in that paper, is if you develop protocols for dealing with viruses of one kind or another and you spend them, you can use them for the next wave, which is going to come, the annual flu or the next specialized virus like SARS or this coronavirus situation. And so uh, to some extent, this is a reusable item, so you're willing to invest more. And what you therefore want to do is to figure out just how can you expand the supply of useful things. And the reason why you want to invest so much is that if you can find a way uh, to give some kind of a simple drug which will neutralize the virus, you may spend $1,000 on a course of treatment. And if you give it to somebody who's 30 years old, you save you know, a huge number of quality years. The statistical life of that is you know, close to $10 million or $8 million, whatever it is. So you really want to kind of get these things in and you want to try to allocate them. The problem that one has is if you decide the way you're going to do this is to cut down on the spread.
as opposed from using medical techniques to doing it, you shut down an economy. Now, this is going to be probably a cut of a 30 to 40 percent of GDP over a quarter is not an unreasonable estimate. They're higher, they're lower, uh, but they're just huge. And one of the consequences of cutting this down is that people are going to get sick and die of other things. I mean, the number of people who have to take physical therapy, who are diabetic in some way, who have kidney failure, need dialysis or whatever, it is huge. And so what you have to do when you do the model is to say, if corona control is going to cost you other lives in other contexts, you want to tamp down on the amount that you do, because those lives are also statistical lives, and they're going to be extremely valuable by the situation. Uh, so what the basic position that I'm taking is you got to be able to do this. You have to do it even in the most extreme case. Um, that is, if you're talking about the million plus scenario, you simply cannot spend 1% of the GDP, you know, uh, say a trillion dollars uh, to prevent the death of 1% of the population, because at that point, everybody else is going to fall short. And so you, you have to kind of allocate down, trying to figure out not how much the statistical life is worth, but getting alternative therapies and saying which of them seems to be the most promising. And then incrementally, you start to move in those kinds of directions. But at the same time, uh, you want to be much more careful about shutting things down. Um, you could see what was happening on March 9th. I actually did a public lecture, and there were all sorts of uh, Purell bottles around there, and people were bumping elbows. They were trying to keep a little bit of distance and so forth. Clearly, those norms would have straightened very much. And so you're trying to ask, can you use those norms as a tool? So you may want to leave retail stores open with low intensities. You may not want to open up sporting events. You may want to let things happen in Rochester or Albany, New York, or Buffalo, which you wouldn't let happen in New York City. Because the trade-offs are very, very real. And the only way in which we know how to do any trade-off is not with a kind of a model of let's optimize. We're always we're incremental marginalists. And what I mean by that is you start with a position, and you can see today that the economic toll, if this continues in this place, it's going to be utterly disastrous. Um, everybody's going to be laid off, high unemployment rates. You're going to get political zippiness, lots of transfer programs that you'll want to do but won't work and so forth. The only thing that will get America out of this is to try to revitalize the economy. And so what you can't do is go to Washington and have two teams, an economic team and a health team, and then they fight for control. The health team wins. The economic team is told to change interest rates, which will do zero in this situation if you lock up all the productive capacity. So it's a plea, essentially, for somebody to look at both sides of this coin and to realize in the face of a lot of the uncertainty, it's a, just a terrible mistake to assume that the worst case viral situation is going to happen. It's probably a mistake to assume that you can cut down that curve to the extent that they would like. It's a mistake to ignore the collateral dislocations from other kinds of illnesses of one thing or another. Uh, so it's just an effort to try and do what you always are doing in the law, trying to figure out how to get a better balance between two things, both of which are regarded as indisputable goods. Now, now I agree with a lot of what you just said there at the end ah, in terms of um, um, the need to always be wary of the countervailing costs of the approach, especially when the cost of this approach in saving some lives or, or trying to protect some lives is going to lead 
you know, directly or indirectly to the death uh, of others. And that obviously we need to be very wary of. And also, of course, we can't base everything around the worst case scenario because in life, the worst case scenario doesn't usually happen. Um, usually it's the second worst or the best or somewhere in between. Um, I agree with all of that. You know, we, we disagreed about a lot on the last podcast. And, and, and as I worked through your approach in this latest essay, here, here are the basic questions I had. Um, the first is thinking through the, the capacity for the public to protect themselves just through voluntary measures. You, you referred in your column to self, self-help measures like self-quarantine and good diet and exercise, and especially with respect to the most vulnerable populations. <laughs> that's, of course, that's, that's true. And, and as, a, as a conservative, I always prefer the voluntary course of action first. But as I sort of suggested in the last podcast, in this case, aren't there real problems from the perspective of private conduct? Aren't there real problems in terms of both a knowledge problem and an externality problem? The knowledge problem being we really don't actually know with the coronavirus what the current state of our own health is, given that there's so much of a lag time between (laughs) infection and symptoms. And then second, and it's not entirely unrelated to the first, is the externality problem that even if you have a mild case or what you think is a mild case of coronavirus and you want to sort of act accordingly, you might not be fully aware of or, or fully care about the external threat. And given the high, you know, the, 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 um, the, the high rate of infect well, I'm suddenly blanking on the on the the, the term but the high rate of transmission tra- transmission transmission um, aren't there real problems here that really can only be solved by coordinated uh, government action forcing people to stay put so that's that's my first question all right, well let me try to answer some of that because it's a, it's the right question if you look at all of the studies what they do is they lump together individual private institutional and coercive mechanisms as part of a single system, and they don't disentangle them. And my view is you have to disentangle them to ask marginally what each of these things are going to do. And so first of all, there is, of course, the knowledge problem. But as ever, it's a problem that cuts in both directions. Uh, there is at least one argument, and I can see it in many people whom I observe, in which people overestimate the rate at which this thing is going to transmit and overestimate its deadliness when it does transmit. Uh, so what they do is they take too many self-help precautions rather than too few. Now, that's not going to be true of everybody because there's no uniformity on this issue. But let's suppose we start at the, the real end. The people who should be self-quarantining are those people who have collateral conditions, diabetes, kidney problems high blood pressure, whatever it turns out to be, and particularly if they're over 65 or 70. Uh, They should do that. I don't think there's a chance that these people are not going to do it. So then what you say is, okay, suppose we can get these people out. Uh, What's going to happen is they're much likely, less likely to get this disease and therefore much less likely to die from it. What about the rest of the population? Well, certainly they're going to be externalities, but they cut again both ways. If you essentially tell people they can't get to their job because it situation. There's a real externality associated with the regulation. Mm-hmm. It blocks all sorts of voluntary contracts that would generally be positive sum. Uh, so what my view is, first you look at the intermediate organizations, and we never let this evolve. But suppose you're running a retail store. Uh, will you just simply open the doors to everybody? No. Will you require them to use Perel when they come in and leave? Yes. You may require them to use masks. You may not. You may limit the number of people there. Uh, There are all sorts of things that you will start to do. And what you could do is use private knowledge 
to essentially coordinate this. And what's happened is you're trying to sell this stuff to a very leery public, um, which is essentially at this point hearing only the really extreme version of this story, the worst case version and so forth. So then you've got to go to the public side. Well, uh, you look around and the question is you really want to have lots of people sitting around in, in arenas watching basketball or soccer game. And in the short term, I think the answer to that question is, you know, not really. This is something, want to close those things down, it's fine. Uh, all I'm arguing for is that when you look at these three devices, you try to figure out how to mitch and max them. And what we've done essentially is we shut everything down. And we shut it down regardless of the age or the composition of the particular group. You need decentralized knowledge. That's the Hayekian problem that you referred to. And you can't get that by having a governor like Cuomo or a governor like Pritzker or a governor like Newsom saying, I'm shutting down every school in the United States. Uh, children, well, I'd like to know exactly what their vulnerabilities are, and it may well be that first graders are very different from 10th graders in terms of these things. So you change the rules with respect to these people. This is just an effort to kind of get this situation because what's going to happen is there are going to be massive layoffs. There already are. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be basically recalibration of retirement plan. Mm -hmm. I think virtually every major firm is going to have to downcast their salaries. Um, I think it's quite likely that by the time that universities get back on their feet, uh, they're going to stop renewals of all sorts of optional contracts. So young academics are going to be out on the wing. And I think folks like myself or you, perhaps who have tenured in one way or another, uh, we're going to see our contracts changed as well because the endowments can't take the kind of beating that they are. Uh, they're down, you know, the market's down to 20,000. You can live at 20,000, but if it keeps going down, it's worse. And in addition, the stock market, by the way, I'll just mention this one point, is the most optimistic of all the measures. Because what happens is a company can shed workers in order to conserve capital. A worker can't shed anything. Um, human capital is basically undiversified for 98% of the population. And so when they get laid off, um, this is a total catastrophe in terms of the way things are really starting uh, to work. So uh, I don't want to listen just to the health people. I don't want to listen to just the economics people. The problem is, and this is you know, my complaint with education generally, we're very siloed. Um, you get people who are experts in one or experts in the other, and neither understands the complexities of the other field. And, you know, I don't think of Donald Trump as the sort of leading intellectual who can kind of bridge multiple fields, but that's the sort of person that you have to have running this kind of show. And unfortunately, with the political polarization, this has become less likely than ever before. Yeah. Just one quick Picking up on one quick point you made early on in that, you talked about the people who should be self-quarantined versus who shouldn't. Um, isn't, I mean, maybe I'm just repeating my earlier question, but even in terms of, of younger people or healthier people or children, to the extent that they're not self-quarantined, they're accelerating then the, 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 the pace of transmission among that community, just the younger and healthier community. That's right. and, and, but, but then increasing the size of that community further puts at risk the people who are self-quarantined because they're self the older people are self-quarantined, but not 
in isolation, right? They still have to make trips to stores occasionally if there's nobody to help them or people are delivering things to them. I mean, no one says you get a free lunch. The question is, what's the rate at which this is going to start to take place? And it turns out that if you have a relatively healthy population, interchanges amongst it are going to produce very low death rates. In fact, there are literally two models out there about the virus right now, and we're not quite sure which is right. There's the Oxford model, which says we all have it anyhow. It's been around for years. It's just so low that it goes beneath the situation. And then there's the other model, which says this is the nastiest virus to come along since the Spanish flu of 1918. We're not even sure which that is. So what you do is you have to make some risk. You're trying to minimize the sum of type 1 and type 2 errors. And that means, given that the economic stuff is falling like a stone, in this way, and it's going to have huge consequences for other areas as well. It seems to me we've tilted too much in the one direction. And there's just enough doubt in these particular studies. I mean, you look at the the world deaths, nobody wants to be trivial or criticizing 50,000 deaths, oh, big deal, or 5,000 in the United States. But the worst of the recent flu systems had 80,000 deaths in the United States. And, you know, it's an open question whether we will reach that money. There are some people who say we'll exceed it by a factor of 10. And others who say, well, that's kind of about right. Uh, so what you said is, you know, trying to do cost benefits, you don't know which of the Healthcare models is correct. I have always inclined towards the lower one. Um, you get a lot of abuse for taking this particular position, but you know, uh, I can't say that it's right, but I certainly don't want to say that it's wrong. If we're talking about a million deaths, we are basically about 0.5% of the way there. Um, and you have to have an explanation, given all the stuff that we're doing, which is going to flip this thing upward. Uh, the doomsday hypothesis types they don't believe that this, even what we're doing is going to stop it. They think it's going to cut it maybe in half. And then, of course, there are lots of people who differ about that. So, again, um, where we are trying to make corrections, you want to make them small. And as you get more data, you keep on revising this sort of stuff. I mean, one of the things that happens to somebody like me is, you know, make a stupid initial presumption. Nobody will ever let you correct it, try and figure it out. But everybody else is kind of correcting their models, and we should all be doing that, hopefully. As the time goes on, the estimates will start to converge. Yeah, I think, I mean, I I still have the Hopkins map up, and you look at it, and it's just ridiculous. You look at Russia, which I I don't have their their current numbers up in front of me, but Russia is almost certainly underreporting. The numbers really aren't in from the third world yet either. Either they're just behind our curves or they're on pace and we just don't know about it yet. And even within the United States, it's not hard to imagine dramatic underreporting among the homeless populations or other people. about death or illness. Well, both actually. And but um, in different proportions, I think. Yeah, and, and we don't know. I mean, then, so I'm agreeing with you that the data is very hard. Even what we purport to think is data is just some of the data, and it's hard really to get to get a sense of what the real data is. We really won't know until after the fact, and after the fact, the data will itself, you know, have been affected by all of these mitigation efforts. And so we're going to be arguing about this, uh, not you and me personally, but as a nation and as a world, we're going to be arguing different scenarios forever on this. This um, is, is the single most traumatic event in terms of long-term impact that has happened in my life, yeah. and I can't think of anything which is bigger. In some sense, this is in terms of day-to-day operation. This is equivalent to a kind of a world war in what's going on. You know, the United States, the cases are going up. Uh, let me just give you the 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 death toll is you know 
this is not a happy number. It's 5,148, turns mm -hmm. out to be the number out of 216,000 cases. But then let me just go down to another number to show you what it is that makes this so hard to do. And the numbers that I'm reporting here are the number of cases. And what you do is the New York Times has this up. If you look at the last five days, okay, it seems that uh, we started about 21,000. We go to about at the peak now at about 25,000. There was clearly a drop on the 30th, but that's a Sunday reporting glitch. Uh, so if you're trying to figure out what the rate of increases in the cases has been over the last five days, it's roughly about 21, 22,000 cases a day. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not clear when you look at this curve that it's going to be concave, going upward. Uh, yesterday's increase was relatively small. Now, what does this mean? If you get a large number of deaths, it doesn't mean that much. But I think we could probably say uh, that reporting is better now than it was a week ago, which means that you probably get more cases. Well, if that's yeah. the case, then the curve is flattening. And by the way, I did I did bring up the Russia stats. Russia is reported right now 3,500 confirmed cases and 30 deaths, which is yeah, 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 insulting. You insulting. Um, <laughs> you don't believe those numbers. No, of course not. So, I don't so, believe the Chinese numbers. Yeah. The no, Italian no. numbers are clearly inflated in the terms of the number of deaths given the comorbidities. But on the other hand, they're underinflated because the people who die before they get to the hospital and never recorded at all. So, so looking at the current situation, my view, and I'm not an expert on this, but my, my sense. We're all um, experts now, guys. Yeah, we are. That's right. Um, uh, is that if the United States, once it was apprised of the, the situation in China, once it was apprised of that in early January, uh, if the United States by, by late January would have invested, oh, $100 billion uh, in uh, more um, protective gear, right, um, in more ventilators, um, and then once it was feasible, and there was obviously a great lag time on this based on the information that was available, but on testing, right, on crafting a test or tests, that if we had started on this two months earlier, we might have been able to significantly blunt the impact in New York and elsewhere. But I think to that, and I think, well, if I were applying Richard's framework in on January 29th, say, which is the uh, the day that the the, the Connecticut senator, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, um, walked out of the White House um, uh COVID-19 briefing and tweeted that the White House was extremely unprepared for what was about to happen. And he started sounding the alarm on that. And, and Tom Cotton was sounding alarms around the same time. Um, if we had moved at that point, how would we have sort of run a cost-benefit analysis on that, not knowing really how dire the situation might be two months later. I mean, if there had been calls in, in late January for $100 billion invested in <clears throat> ventilators and protective gear, I, I think it would have it politically would have been almost impossible to get that through, um, even though in hindsight, I wish we would have. I mean, what, what do you think? How do you think about that sort of counterfactual? Well, I, you know, Trump, remember, he tried to shut down, I think he did the inter, inter, international flights to Canada rather to China and was abused at the time, if I recall right. correctly. Right. And and so, you know, there were people who were starting to say they had, you know, Trump is a punching bag, so let's punch at him, saying, well, all this is just a part of his sort of economic protectionism, it had nothing to do with health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were a lot of people who sort of believed that. 
Um, there was no real sign of anything until the Wuhan situation started. And immediately what people started to say, well, there go the Chinese again, because not only are they not preventing any of this stuff, but they're killing and imprisoning all the doctors and everybody who's trying to get this stuff out. I don't know what would have happened. I mean, to me, what should have happened at some point is that the moment you started to have the real, the, the two cases, the, the Washington case uh, with the nursing facilities in Kirkland and the situation that started up in, uh, uh, in, in, in Westchester County or just south of it, Maranek and Larchmont and so forth. Um, at that point, you should have had more aggressive social distancing. What's so extraordinary about this and this is true with every one of these cases, is it's very difficult to draw national inferences from local disasters. That's the hard part of this. So uh, the New York deaths in the United States are probably over about half of them now. If you include in New York, not just the city, but also New Jersey, Bergen County and so forth. And there are other places that are low. So now here's the problem. I wish I knew the answer. Uh, the mayor of Chicago and the the governor of Illinois, the governor of California, they all put themselves on high alert when they're 10 to 12 cases, saying, if we don't stop it now, we're never going to be able to stop it. Uh, but they could be the wrong positive. It could be you're stopping something from doubling, which would have been 100 deaths, and now you get it down to 50. Uh, unless you know what these localized curves are, it's very, very hard. And looking at the national data set doesn't give you that. I mean, I can make a very simple-minded argument. If you spend your time 10 minutes walking down New York City streets and 10 minutes walking down Chicago streets, and New York is a much more densely populated city. Uh, and therefore, the spread rate is likely to be very, very much higher. And when you start talking about Los Angeles, you know, there are a couple of places where you have high rises and so forth, but nothing like the densities of foot traffic that you have here on the Upper West Side, uh, going in and out of the subway stations, going up and down Broadway and so forth. Uh, so the variation makes it so hard. And then I'll just make it one other thing, ventilators. Um, as somebody said, A, these things are really expensive to make. And B, they're extremely hard to use. Um, you can't just put a ventilator there and get it on. You have to monitor people. It requires all sorts of staffs, corrections, and so forth, selection procedures. So um, there was a powerful letter in the Wall Street Journal saying, you're talking about ventilators. You know, that's two months from now that maybe we could get this thing. I have to practice triage tomorrow. And I think somebody who has the moral courage to say, I have to do it and then does it is a very valuable and courageous citizen, as opposed to somebody who says never do it, at which point uh, you're not going to have an unnecessary loss of you know, statistical lives. Um, you're going to kill the wrong people by not saving the right people. So, I mean, at the ground, I think the doctors are heroic. But again, this is my, I teach medical types. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I walk into a room of doctors who are experts in surgery, diagnosis, and so forth. I say to them, what's marginal cost? They don't know what the word means. Quite literally. It's just not what they're trained about. So there's this huge question of what counts as expertise in this area. And the answer is there's no one field which dominates this. It's you need people who know law, you need people who know epidemiology, you know people who know medicine, people who know economics, people who know banking, people who know, who know, who know. And the question is, can you get a cross or interdisciplinary team to deal with this? And at present, I'm afraid the answer to that question is a dispiriting no. But it's, okay. it's, 
it sounds like you're asking uh, or you're wishing that each doctor also had sort of a either was or or had access to an actuary to sort of take each patient one at a time. No, no, no. I think grade okay. And grade sort of the the projected quality of life. I think they're deadly accurate on treating that. Yeah. Right now. I mean, (laughs) they they look they you know, there are scores, there are other ways of doing it, um, QWERTY scores, a bunch of things like that, in which if you take three or four measures uh, you can give a very strong estimate as to the probability of survival of a given person. That's not the problem. The problem is that kind of knowledge I think you desperately rely on doctors for. But the statistical inference of how many people are likely to die given the conditions of the virus is not a medical question as such. Certainly not a legal question. Um, we don't even know what field it is. Is it just epidemiology or is it also evolutionary theory? I believe that these are all relevant. Yeah. And so, you know, I want as many people to get involved in this thing and to put this stuff out there. And I hope that people who make mistakes are not going to be pilloried the way I have been on some of these things, uh, because it's only through a free entry in intellectual ideas. And one of the things that's so disturbing when I, you listen to the criticisms that are made or anybody, oh, he's not an X or she doesn't know why. Well, nobody knows everything that has to be known. And so the question is, you want free entry into this intellectual market, and you don't want this to become a kind of a guild. So I think we've done enough about this. You wanted to talk about something else before we go? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, and I'll, this is my, my last point, and it's, huh. it's just what my, 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 my concern in all of this is as we think through the cost of the policy response and through your analysis, I mean, for me, ultimately, so the it seems to me, and I'm, I'm borrowing this line from a friend, uh, Jonathan Last at the Bulwark, but um, the, you know, the, the real problem here, the, the, the problem here with the economy is not the policy response. The problem with the economy is COVID-19, and that until the pandemic is under, is it really under control, um, the, the the economy is 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 in real trouble, not because of anything that the government is imposing on it. Although the government obviously is imposing real costs and burdens. But the problem, the cost here really, I think, is best accounted back to the pandemic itself and less so to the government response. But that's but 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 that's sort of my, yeah. my guess is your, your response is that I'm sort of begging the question. Yeah. 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 So, um, so in terms of things that are going viral, in addition to COVID-19, uh, should we talk about Adrian Vermeule's article? Uh, just for a few minutes. Why sure. not? So your your uh, your former colleague um, uh, and and my I'll say my friend um, I've known him for for quite a while. Adrian Vermeule at Harvard Law School published an essay this week in the Atlantic um, in their Battle for the Constitution series, to which I've also contributed. Um, and the subject is uh, a new conservative constitutionalism. As he says, you know, originalism has outlived its usefulness, although I'm not sure that Adrian ever thought originalism was particularly useful. That's true. Um, And he says that we need that conservatives should pivot towards a constitutionalism of the common good that really puts morality and moral virtue at the heart of constitutional law, calling for recalibrations of everything from sort of the obvious ones like uh, abortion um, or or contraception uh, in, in in constitutional law. To things like speech, right, um, and, property. and and property rights, and so on. Uh, this article has made quite a splash. I think I've seen a number of critics on the left sort of point to this article as proving that originalism was always sort of a cynical political tactic. I, I'm not sure why they think that, since Adrian's never really been an originalist. Uh, but what's your what's your reaction to Adrian's 
uh, suddenly uh, viral uh, argument? Well, I mean, the word viral is important. Look, the first thing about it is it's much too cosmic in terms of its approach. Every originalist is treated as an originalist who believes in original public meaning. And it turns out no particular person is talked about. And then if you're trying to test the alternative between different theories, he doesn't talk about any cases or any doctrines in any degree of particularity. So you can get a sense of what is at stake. And so the first thing you want to do is to get yourself down from this uh, 5,000 million mile approach and get a little bit better. The second thing about it is this is problem that Adrian has. He lists himself as a professor of constitutional law, high specialty. My view is, I wrote in my little book, you know, which in tax in part what Adrian and Cass Sunstein wrote on the sort of dubious morality of modern administrative law. I do not think you can do public law unless you know private law. And so if you want to talk about property and you want to talk about speech, you better know something about land estates and so forth. You better know something about defamation and fraud and all the rest of these things, because otherwise you can't moor yourself. Third problem, I think, is he basically treats liberal, libertarianism and classical liberalism as the same without bothering to distinguish between them. And as you know, I'm a libertarian with a classical liberal framework, and there's a huge difference between them. Uh, the libertarian is much more heavily into the sort of individual choice and morality, kind of selfless, self-contained stuff. Uh, the classical liberal well, they start to believe that they're collective action problems that are difficult to overcome. They certainly believe in taxation. They try to make them flat. They believe in eminent domain. They try to make it subject to just compensation and all the rest of that. They're two completely different systems, and you can't attack one by attacking the other. And so what does this lead to, this talk about the common good? Now, there are two definitions of the common good, sort of. Uh, one is a kind of Rousseauian general will definition, where it's the will that binds everybody but doesn't represent anybody in particular. It's kind of a floating uh, utilitarian or uh, somehow or other essence that floats above society. I can't believe that. And then there's the other view, which I uphold to, which is methodological individualism, which says that anytime you make statements about aggregates, they have to be ultimately reduced to statements about the individuals who compose those attributes, and that you measure welfare by seeing the way when you move these collectivities, what it does to individual utilities up and down. And so if you have a corporation, uh, the reason you have shareholders with identical positions under these circumstances is uh, quite simply that you've organized the business so as to eliminate the conflicts of interest between them so you can make their collective decisions easier. That doesn't go 100% of the way, but fungible shares are a way of essentially allowing people to have tradable interests so that their fundamental differences in policies, you can move in one direction. We don't see any of the stuff that's doing there. And so, you know, to basically say, we're going to get rid of all this stuff, um, property contract is you know, irresponsible, in my view, unless you do this. And also, you know, you talk about the police power. Well, the police power is part of the classical liberal constitution. And so I look at this and I say, oh, my God, I don't know whether I'm an originalist or not. I think everybody ought to be an originalist, at least to the extent that you don't give words that are in a document, meetings that are contrary to their common usage. But certainly anybody who wants to do constitutional law has to worry about a raft of other situations. The police power is not in the Constitution, but every constitutional lawyer has had to come to grips with it now for at least 200 years. We certainly don't want to ignore those problems. Uh, there are changes in doctrine, like uh, 
Marbury and Madison and other things that are very suspect on originalist ground, but we certainly don't want to go back on them 200 years after they're embedded in our social institutions and so forth. So it's a much different kind of an inquiry. And I think he sets himself up as a caricature to the left, but the left, I think, also makes the same kind of difficulties insofar as what it does is it finds somebody and attacks him as a straw man instead of systematically trying to go through substantive positions on individual cases uh, so that we can see, are they correct in their reading of the Commerce Clause or are they not? And so on would go. So I'm basically not surprised that it's been this huge fight. I would probably have to write something up about it myself to get my positions out slightly more coherently, uh, but I'm not persuaded by it. And I certainly don't regard it as representative of whatever form of libertarianism, classical liberalism, or conservatism that I represent. Now, and the, your views? Well, the Straussian reading of Adrian's essay is that actually all he's doing is sort of uh, lampooning the left. I mean, uh, liberals. Is, is uh, this Leo Strauss? You talking right, about? right. That, okay. that liberals, liberals and progressives have now for decades pursued their own v- vision of a common good constitutionalism, mm-hmm. um, and that what Adrian is proposing here is more or less uh, a Catholic version of what they have achieved over the course of several decades, particularly on social issues. In fact, he at one point, if I remember correctly, links uh, back to. Mark Tushnet's now infamous essay written shortly before the 2016 election, where he said uh, liberals need to abandon defensive crouch constitutionalism and really start, you know, kicking conservatives through constitutional law. That's when he cursed out uh, Justice Kennedy, right? Right, right. And so maybe uh, and, and, and Adrian links to that. And in a way, what Adrian is doing now on the right or a right, a right wing version of sort of abandoning defensive crouch constitutionalism. So the Straussian reading would be that he's actually just mocking them and allowing their outrage, outrage to show their hypocrisy. I don't actually think it's a, he's doing this in a Straussian way, though. I think he means it in good faith. I'll say, given that the whole conceit of our of our podcast is that you're the, the classical yeah. liberal libertarian, I'm the more traditional conservative, you know, would am I more inclined towards Adrian's approach? Well, no, not really. I, I do kind of like the idea that he's referring to the common good. It actually reminded me of the, and I, I just brought it up on my screen before we started taping, um, issue one of the public interest, where Daniel Bell and Irving Kristol in their lead editorial, they end by by a defense of the notion that there is such a thing as the public interest. And they refer to it, they say, along with its equivalents. And the first one they list is the common good. Um, it's. I think it's useful to think nationally in those terms of a common good that's distinct from individual interests. Um, but I'm not sure how far to take it, and I'm certainly not sure how far to take it in constitutional law. In some ways, the parts of constitutional law are, are things that I wish would get more respect in constitutional law, such as deference to traditional arrangements. Um, that, I think, is a way of promoting common good to the extent that traditional arrangements are a way of, of, of preserving, embodying and preserving the common good as tested over time. Um, but for the particulars of Adrian's approach, I've just, like I said, I've, he and I are friends. He clerked for, I, I clerked for Judge David Santel, so did Adrian, before going on to clerk for Justice Scalia. 
And so I've known Adrian um, for, for a while, and, and I've just never agreed with this approach to constitutional law. First of all, I think, as I said at the beginning, there is such a thing as common good constitutionalism. The left has been doing it for years. I think they have a better chance of succeeding in the long run than conservatives do, even with the new Trump judges. And quite frankly, a left liberal or progressive version of common good constitutionalism would not be very hospitable for Adrian's view, uh, or Adrian Adrian as a Catholic, me as a Catholic either. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so wary of and opposed to what Adrian's proposing, because I think if it were actually tried in constitutional law, Catholics like me and Adrian would lose and would lose quite badly. Um, but again, it's it's Adrian's now the leading figure of this sort of Catholic integralist, integralist movement being advanced by First Things and others. I've always thought it's sort of ludicrous and cartoonish um, from the beginning, and and Adrian, as as smart uh, and and as uh, as smart a person as he is, I've just never understood what world he thinks any of this is remotely plausible in. There is a maxim called "live and let live," which I think is part of the, uh, how I say, the fabric of any decent society. Yeah. Now, that is, there has to be a way when there are some issues on which there are very deep disagreements. We don't try to resolve them by by majority vote. We try to create separate domains in which each party can do his own way. And so to put it in a corporate way, uh, you could have two kinds of people. You could have people who are optimists and pessimists. You could put them into one corporation and try to figure out a risk strategy for investment, and they'll kill each other. Or you can say, look, the optimists join firm A and the pessimists join point B, and then each of them invest in accordance with the common views that they have. And live and let lives allows for separation so that you don't have to have everything as this ultimate kind of collective common good. And, and the partitioning is extremely important. The only thing you truly have to have is the one thing on which I think there is some serious agreement, which is that wanton killing and aggression is not what we want. Uh, we don't want to live lives that are solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And so what we do is we concentrate on the things that there's no real agreement on and a necessity for central action, which is the control and the use of force and fraud. That's what kind of drives you back towards the classical liberal position. And I think it's an instinct that you actually share because conservatisms often are people who say we form our own institutions and we think they work pretty well. And we do not want to see them forcibly disrupted from the outside we would rather see them evolve more cautiously from the inside. Is that fair? I, that that's definitely fair. I as as I sort of quipped on Twitter, um, I I too think there needs to be more more talk of virtue um, uh, and tradition in constitutional law. But I'd rather see it as a shield, not a sword. And and Adrian, I think, is really posing it as a posing it as a as a sword, but hopefully only metaphorically so. Um, well, look at this, Richard. After all of our disagreements the last few weeks about about um, about COVID nineteen and everything, Adrian Vermeule brings us together. <laughs> so maybe on that note, we'll 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 call it a, an episode. As always, uh, Richard, I enjoy these conversations. Thank you for taking time to do this, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. We hope you'll tune in again next time for another episode of Reasonable Disagreements. And good night to you, or good morning to you, Adam. Bye bye. <laughs> This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.